Hello, everyone. Welcome to another episode of Ed Talks Film, the podcast, the podcast version of my YouTube show, Ed Talks Film, where I usually do more edited, topic-based things on YouTube, uh, on my podcast. I just sort of have conversations uh, with you guys, uh, sometimes with other people. Usually it's, uh, you know, me talking about movies because this is uh, my passion. This is the thing I love the most. And, uh, yeah, I figure why not give you guys sort of a more long format version of uh, the show. Uh, first things first, some housekeeping. If you are interested in checking out the YouTube channel, if you're not familiar with the YouTube channel, Ed Talks Film Redux, um, it will be linked in the show notes of every episode. It will also be linked on the anchor page. Uh, for the show so make sure you check that out uh yeah and you can follow me on instagram at ed talks film e-d-t-a-l-k-s-f-i-l-m uh all one word uh yeah but yeah today you know it's a nice snowy sunday um walked my dog today chilled out uh and i wanted to i've been thinking about doing something about this for a while because so for those of you who don't know I write I write screenplays uh it's a hobby I guess I take it fairly seriously uh when I write but screenplay writing is uh you know the thing I do probably the most often recreationally um it's something I love I I want to be a screenwriter one day as well as a film director uh but I you know I have to write stories if I want stories to tell so you know, I do that, and, uh, you know, obviously I watch a lot of movies, <laughs> the, you know, Ed Talks film, I, it wouldn't make sense to not be a movie watcher and write screenplays, uh, although, considering the type of movies that Hollywood puts out sometimes, you're, you're not quite sure if these people actually watch movies or love movies, <laughs> um, but, you know, I, I figure some of you guys probably have very similar interests. And I know for a fact some people uh, that follow me on the Instagram and on my YouTube channel have a similar interest in filmmaking as well as uh, just being normal film cinephile enthusiasts. And, uh, you know, I figured today I would talk a little bit about, you know, movies that sort of tailor to that part of me that really really wants to make films right the part of me that writes these stories the part of me that um you know that 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 is the filmmaker not ed talks film but the ed makes film side of me uh and i figure that uh i come up with a little list of films and talk to you about them and what exactly makes me what what exactly about them inspires me to not only write but to become a better writer by extension and, uh, yeah, I feel like it'd be pretty fun. I get to talk to you guys about some movies, maybe share with you guys some movies you've seen or not seen before, maybe, uh, provide some new takes on movies that you may or may not have seen before and hopefully introduce you guys to something, uh, new and unique and interesting. So without further ado, let's get right into the list. Um, the first movie on here, first two movies actually on here are movies that encompass the sort of like multi-character weaving in and out story arc films uh you know i'm a big fan of this genre actually um you know i like the films of robert altman i um am a fan of 
you know, the films of Steven Soderbergh and Paul Thomas Anderson and, 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 you know, Alejandro Gonzalez and Yuritu and, you know, a lot of the early work, you know, Stephen Gagan and I'm, I'm, a, I'm a lot of the early works by those directors sort of, uh, were inside of this genre, right? These multi point of view films that, you know, had all these characters maybe seemingly not understanding that they were all connected to each other and then eventually, um, their connections becoming revealed uh, as the film goes on. And the first film we have on this list is uh, Traffic. Now, Traffic is a movie that I remember seeing when I was in high school, I believe. Um, I think I saw it on Netflix, and I remember being absolutely blown away by it. It was insane. Uh, it was a very interesting movie about a topic that I had only ne- not necessarily had like the biggest knowledge of, which was the war on drugs. It was something that, you know, you hear about here and there, but I wasn't necessarily the most knowledgeable about it. And this was a movie that sort of helped me, uh, you know, push into wanting to learn more about that topic. And, you know, this is a film written by Stephen Gagan, and actually yesterday, at the time of the recording of this podcast, I watched Stephen Gagan's Syriana, which uh, absolutely blew me away. It's a film that I had never seen before, and watching it uh, for the first time, really, really awesome. But Traffic, you know, it follows, you know, a senator and his daughter who's, who's strung out on drugs, uh, DEA agents, uh, undercover DEA agents, as well as... Uh, you know, people who are deeply rooted within the cartels. And this movie, honestly, I think it's one of the most well-written examples of, you know, a film that's able to balance, you know, a big message, right, about about the war on drugs, be able to tell a big, sprawling, epic story about the war on drugs, and also be able to tell a story about characters, who are caught up in it and who they are and not really miss a beat on any front. And that's very, very hard to do because, you know, you see a lot of movies, you, they either, you know, it's hard to not sacrifice character for plot. It's hard to not sacrifice plot for character. It's hard not to sacrifice, um, you know, the movement of the story, the pacing of the story for character or plot. Right. And they say that a good script does, um, you know, it, it builds, it moves the plot forward, it builds character, and it, uh, what does it say? It moves the plot forward, it builds character, and it, and, it, and it builds the world all at the same time, right? And, uh, you know, there are films that are, there are films and screenplays that are obviously exceptions to that. They're very, very heavily character-based screenplays, uh, <laughs> but, um, but Traffic is, I think, a great example, and I think, in part, it has to do with the fact that each section of the film, right, each storyline in the film is very, very compartmentalized uh, for a very long time. And I think that sort of helps, like, you know, when you're watching it, it feels like all these unique individual stories. And then, like, the big part of it isn't like, we're not, it's not like trying to floss the connections out, out, out and about, like, really early, you know what I mean? You go into it, and you're not like, okay, these are all connected. It's like, no, we are going to sit here, and we're going to, like, you know, the all these storylines are going to um, 
you know, you're going to get engrossed in all these three different stories, basically. And it, and it devotes its time to those stories. And then eventually when those connections go up, it's that much more hard hitting because you bought into the characters, because you've bought into whatever their mission is, the world, you know, things like that. Um, and I think that was really strong. But I think another movie that I probably like more than this film that does that very well and does kind of break, you know, floss the connections of the uh, story very early is uh, Paul Thomas Anderson's Magnolia, which is a film I really, really like. A film that um, I always have a great time watching. Maybe not one of my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson films nowadays, but it is a film I always find remarkable whenever I watch it. Um, you know, and I think one of the greatest moments of that film, I think, is the very opening of the film. And this is like sort of what I talk about, like like when you write, right, because you want to write something, it depends. Sometimes when I'm writing, I, I like to write sometimes very, very low-key stories that, you know, take a while to build and take their time because those are sometimes the films I'm very into. But sometimes I get to points where I'm like, oh my gosh, I need like a really exciting sequence here, right? I want to write something that's very exciting, very interesting that can really, really like, you know, flex the, my writing muscles and the, and the, and, and the story, so to speak. And that's where I think the beginning of this film really knocks it out of the park because Paul Thomas Anderson, what he's able to do in that, in that script, right, is he takes these, you know, these stories of coincidence in the beginning, which I really, really love, right? The three stories of coincidence, right? The, the, the young boy who, uh, jumps off the roof of the building and, and is shot by his parents down below. Uh, the Greenberry Hill gang who uh, <laughs> who assault somebody at Greenberry Hill. Um, and then the um, the story of the the firefighter and the and the and the blackjack dealer, right? And you know these very just very disturbingly connected stories with that that encompass a lot of coincidence and you know you're like I'm, I'm, I'm not <laughs> this is very weird and interesting and then um you know then we get to that big sprawling opening sequence where you get to see how every character is connected and I think Paul Thomas Anderson especially in his early career from Punch Drunk Love backwards you know he when it came to his films and how they inspired me originally when I watched his films was his ability to write these exciting multi-layered sequences involving all these characters. And, you know, there, there are films that, uh, you know, I've written that have had many characters. Usually my, uh, films when I write them are centralized to one character, but uh, it just so happens that the screenplay I'm writing now and the screenplay that I'm planned to be writing next or a multi-character, multi-storyline screenplay. So, watching a film like Magnolia, I think, really, really helps uh, helps me with that. And when you watch that movie, you know, that movie goes on long. And I know for some people it might be a little bit too long. For me, it's not. I'm actually a big fan of long movies that take their time and, like, spend all the time they they really need to tell their story. Not that movies don't go on too long. There are movies that definitely do. But I think... You know, more often than not, like when my attention span can really handle it, like I can feel very rewarded and not necessarily feel slighted by a movie that's taken its time and gone over like the say the two hour and 45 minute mark into the three hour mark. 
those films are films that I actually have come to love a lot. And, you know, I would like to write a very great film that uh, went very long, but I know that right now that's not necessarily what I'm what I'm what I'm going for when I write. But uh, but I think Magnolia is a good example of, of, of a great way to create a multi-layered, multi-character driven story and really find logical and very emotional ways to connect those characters. Right. But, but that's a film that really, really does ultimately get me very, very excited when I watch it. And I've all, and, and that's a, that's not just, uh, necessarily, you know, minimized to, to a movie like Magnolia in Paul Thomas Anderson's work, you know, a film like the master, which, which has three characters, three very strong characters in the film. Um, is another one where, where usually, usually that movie is very like, you know, Freddy or, or Lancaster, but then there's also Amy Adams character as well comes in sometimes. But even that movie as well, you know, when you look at it and you're able to see like when Paul Thomas Anderson, uh, does that film and, and you watch like how those characters interact on, you know, they're on each of their respective planes, right. Without each other. What he does is, if, is is he creates the necessary conditions for those characters to have very emotional, very high um, tension, very high um, feeling scenes when they're together, right? When Freddie and Lancaster do end up have those scenes together. When you see what's ha- those scenes that really illustrate what's going on in their normal lives, I think really, really help highlight why it's important when they get together in those movies and what they talk about and why it's important um, the things that they talk about when they get together and how they interact with each other and stuff like that and the things they yell at each other. You know, you think about the the whole Freddy in the prison with Lancaster, right? And the things they say to each other and they're like, you're, you're fake, you're a fraud. And then, you know, he's, you're lost, this and that. You know what I mean? And then... um you know, and then and then you see scenes like uh, when Lancaster Dodd has that moment alone before he's you know talking about before he's about to reveal and talk about that new book that he's releasing, and you know there's the whole discussion with Laura Dern about you know what what can you recall to what can you imagine, and she picks up on how that kind of completely changes the thesis of what he's talking about, and you know you realize that even he himself has realized that <laughs> that he's kind of a fraud and this and that yada yada yada. And then you get to see, um, you know, when he meets Freddie a lot later down the line and you're like, this is very interesting, especially when he sings to him. And, and you just, you know, the movie does a good job at building and realizing that both halves of the story are essentially about two men who are missing something, right, in their lives. And they only found it when they found each other. And, you know, that that's very inspiring. And, and, and movies that are able to do that, and I think very well, right? Movies that are able to do that at, at, a, at a level that, say, Paul Thomas Anderson is able to do with a movie like Magnolia or a movie like The Master, which is probably my favorite Paul Thomas Anderson movie. Um, I think that's really helpful and beneficial to writers because they are really getting a master class and, like, maybe not exactly, like, what their style is going to be in making those stories, but... And definitely highlights, you know, what's important sometimes when making those stories. Like, what are the technical aspects of writing in a screenplay? And and it gets you really thinking, like, what are the things that make these moments hit? And I think it's mo- usually in movies like uh, 
you know, the master, um, and to an extent Magnolia as well, right? Where the master is like the more low key side of, of why these emotions hit, right? The, and, the, and Magnolia is the more flashy in your face side. They both are, aren't like lazily thrown together. It's very, very thought through. And I think that, that, that helps um, writers, especially um, who are like just starting out because when they're watching those movies and they go, okay, this isn't like a normal movie where you just where you know like everything's very clearly set up or this and that like the like the 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 director the writer is making you look it's making you really get try to look and get introspective and and try and really dissect why these characters are like this why these characters believe these things why these characters are doing these things and i think that's something that's very very valuable to think about when you're writing because you don't want to write characters who are just doing things you know what I mean? And it have no bearing on the story. It have no bearing on their past or it have no bearing on, 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 on changing the character or if the character changes at all. Right. It has to be in character. And the only way to really make sure that they're doing things in character is to know, you know, who that character is, what they're missing, what their love, what they want. Right. So I think, I think that's why those two movies especially are, are very good examples of that. Next, we have another sort of like two things that I'm going to talk about, and that is movies that are, you know, very, very central character based, but have more conceptual, philosophical type of um, storytelling, right? Right. Or like a concept, like the concept is sort of the thing that drives the story in a sense right and it does will have like a central character or this and that but but movies that are like very very much about something and first on the list we have first reformed now for those of you who don't know first reformed is my favorite movie of all time i hope the snowblower outside isn't like completely destroying uh you guys here the waveforms look pretty okay but somebody is snow blowing outside so i'm sorry if you guys can really hear that very clearly but um, First Reformed, this is my favorite movie of all time. And I became a huge fan of Paul Schrader once seeing this movie and seeing his uh, movie from 1985, I believe, uh, Mishima, Life in Four Chapters. Both of those movies really, really did a lot to sort of help shape my, uh, you know, to shape to shape how I, how I see movies, how I love movies. And I believe I've, I've spoken about that in the previous podcast. Um, no, but first reformed, right? I think I think what Paul Thomas Anderson, I mean Paul Thomas Anderson, what Paul Schrader does in this movie that really, really shines through and also shines through in like Mishima is he nails the concept of a single locked point of view story about a character whose struggle is entirely internal, right? And you know, the every 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 story, right? Whether you look at you know. Uh, you know, action movies or 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 uh, drama movies or horror movies, right? There's there's usually that every character has like an internal struggle and an external struggle. But Paul Schrader sort of puts you in a position where what happens when the internal struggle that a character is facing is ultimately what drives them to create an external struggle. At times, right? And it's not like there isn't legitimate inter- external struggles, but like it's that internal struggle that really, really drives, 
you know, how they approach those external struggles and sometimes even helps them create another external struggle on top of maybe the smaller ones that they're already dealing with, right? I love Paul Schrader because, you know, he's, he's, he's been a very good director at writing these very tortured characters, right? Who, who, who are dealing and reckoning with like the sins of their past, so to speak, in ways that ultimately, you know, uh, <laughs> that, 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 that sort of turned them into ticking time bombs. You know what I mean? You know, one, uh, one of my favorite movies of, of the last year was the card, was this film, The Card Counter, you know, which was about a, a prisoner who, um, or a man who was a prisoner, right, in, in, in Leavenworth Prison, who had, um, you know, been a torturer at Bagram Airfield, or Abu Ghraib, right? was part of the torture program and, and society said he paid his debt when he was released from prison, but he doesn't feel like he really has. And that sort of, you know, because of that torture, it sort of, and, and how he feels about himself and, and that guilt or whatever, that internal struggle puts him in a position where he creates an external problem that needs to be solved in the film later which i won't spoil but say with first reformed right this priest who's who sent his son off to die in iraq right a war that he saw as immoral um you know he's he's forever guilt-stricken about that he's he's become impotent in the ability to have meaningful relationships with people especially women in the movie um he becomes more and more closed off after somebody who he mentors ultimately kills themselves and then what you see is him go down this continually self-destructive path um where he becomes more radical about a certain idea that's infected him, which is environmentalism, which was an idea that infected the brain of this man who he had counseled who killed himself, right? And I love the idea of, like, a story that, that can really, like, take, like, a struggle that a character is going through and sort of, like, almost inside-out way, like, create create a problem, right? Like, the fact that that person is struggling with that creates... The, what is what ultimately creates the main problem of the story in the film. So that's always been fascinating. And that brings me to a director that I think ultimately really does that well, right? Where Paul Schrader does that and then usually links some sort of social issue or something that he thinks about, right? Right. Some concept, right? Whether it's the tort, which are, whether it's the United States reckoning with its torture program and the card counter or, or the ills of, of living of, of the ills of the you know the the environmentalist belief that the world is you know ending and that we're destroying creation right and that, and that eventually like you like we're creating the the um the conditions for humanity's demise at the hands of mother nature uh through our reckless uh use of 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 it basically but somebody who really took a lot of those philosophical concepts, who greatly inspired Paul Schrader and, and was ultimately like a huge innovator in this sort of field, this portion, this genre of filmmaking was Ingmar Bergman, right? His film Winter Light is, is incredibly um, instrumental um, in informing Paul Schrader's work. And you can see that, especially in a film like First Reformed, which borrows heavily from Winter Light, right? 
you know, Bergman films have been have been uh, coined like Kierkegaardian, right? Right. They're very um, contemplative films that that take a look at things like uh, you know loneliness. That take a look at uh, things that um, like despair, right? These these you know, you know what happens when you what what is the feeling that you feel when when maybe you come to the conclusion that maybe god doesn't exist maybe or maybe he's just silent and he's away maybe he's god's left right uh ingmar bergman sort of is is really good at taking all of those concepts and creating stories that are able to really dissect what those really look like right in a person because you can make a film about a concept but usually if your film depending on what you're going for if your film necessarily isn't that well made or or, or your writing isn't that sophisticated you may go out of your way to explain and talk about these concepts within the film without really having a good story centered around it right or by the time you get to where you want to talk about this concept, it feels like so out of left field, right? When it when compared to the story that you're telling, or it feels like um, maybe not out of left field in a way that doesn't relate, but like it just feels like pushy, like the director is like just sitting there talking to you. And Bergman's no stranger to this, um, but the way he does it is 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 very interesting, and usually how he's able to do it right is really put the conversations about these concepts within the mouths of the characters in a way that comes across naturally right um a great movie another great movie besides winter light that uh you know concern uh, winter light a film that concerns uh, a priest who um counsels a man who is scared of nuclear annihilation and through a conversation with him, uh, you know, this man is it wants counsel and wants to like, you know, you know, he needs something to help restore his faith in, in God and, and humanity. And ultimately, because of the priest's own d- despair that he has, cannot uh, give him uh, what he needs, basically cannot cannot give him the uh, the solace he's looking for, ultimately setting him down an even worse spiral of depression than the one that he was already going down. So then when it comes to a movie like, uh, you know, Autumn Sonata, which is about a, a daughter whose mother returns and, 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 you know, and it's about like how the insecurities of a parent, how, how the baggage that a parent carries, right. Ultimately can hurt and, and, and sort of disable a child emotionally and for years into their adulthood, what, what they what they see in their childhood, like what, what the things are that, that the parent has done to them, the abuse that may not even, you know, be overtly abusive, maybe not like hitting or outright screaming, but like the manipulation, right? The 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 feeling of the lack of agency over your own future, over your own ambitions, right? Those things that your parents push on you over and over again and, and make you feel like you have to be um, in service of, right? Those things can do lasting mental and emotional damage to people. And Autumn Sonata is a really, really good example of that. So like when I look at these films like First Reformed, Winter Light, Autumn Sonata and stuff like that, 
You know, whenever you write, I'm sure that there's bigger questions you want to ask, right? When when you're writing a movie, um, you know, I'm writing I'm writing a film right now, and it's a family drama. I like to write family dramas, um, or films that sort of have to do with drama that that concerns uh, family dynamics at times. And you know, you kind of want to ask, like, okay, what what does it look like when you know when you're thinking about the things that truly have affected you or other people you know, um, you know, what what is the cost of a parent being so devoted to something to the point that it is a detriment to their relationship with their children and not only a detriment to the relationship with their children, but is actively destroying their relationship with their children. Those are things that I like to think about um, when I write. And uh, I feel like films like these, First Reform, Winter Light, Autumn Sonata, they do a very good job at, at sort of getting me into that mode, right? Right. The the idea, like, okay, what 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 exactly are the bigger pictures that I want to say here, and how can I clearly get those across without over explaining it or or coming off as cheesy or preachy when I'm talking about it? And I feel like that's that's a big uh, that's that's a big win, especially when it comes to the genre of like slow cinema, as Paul Schrader calls it. Right. The slow cinema genre has always been very, very good at, at sort of bringing these broad philosophical concepts into, um, you know, in, into the fray without necessarily the preachiness or, or the bigness or, or, or the the overtness of a film like, I don't know, by, by a director like, say, Steven Spielberg, so to speak. Now, next, where would I be on this list without um, bringing you a film by Quentin Tarantino? And I'm sure it won't be one that you're expecting. I think it's pretty obvious that Quentin Tarantino is on this list. Quentin Tarantino is the master at dialogue he just is his dialogue is catchy his dialogue is very punchy his dialogue is very well written his dialogue is always very character specific and character and motivation driven his character his his dialogue is very very fun and exciting and a pleasure to the ear to listen to and you know every movie isn't going to have like quentin tarantino dialogue type characters or scenes however Sometimes he's able to make films that, or sometimes when you're writing a film, you, or making a film, you know, sometimes there are those characters that come in that really, really, you know, can bring some life to maybe an otherwise dark or depressing story. Uh, And also with his dialogue, you know, it also is one of the, I think the things that sort of made him him and made his films very special, especially when you look at a film like Pulp Fiction, so to speak, was people always talked about his dialogue is so realistic. It's not really realistic. I think it's just super believable. And he's done a good job at sort of like tricking you into thinking that these are conversations that people have, even though they kind of aren't. <laughs> um, but a film, I think, you know, really encompasses that as well as something else I'm very, very interested, in, which is sort of crime and pulpy type stories is not Pulp Fiction, but his follow-up film, Jackie Brown. Um, and this is another film with interweaving storylines that uh, of characters who are all connect, who are all going to be connected. And that's a big Tarantino um, 
that was a big Tarantino thing, especially in the '90s, right? With his with his films in the '90s from Reservoir Dogs, Pulp Fiction, and uh, Jackie Brown. But Jackie Brown is a more low-key film, isn't it? Because Jackie Brown is mostly dialogue-driven. It isn't necessarily driven a lot by this violence or these big, bombastic, huge, violent scenes, but it is a film that is far more intimate than Pulp Fiction. And I think that's what sort of makes that movie super brilliant, and it makes it very attractive to me, is that he's able to tell a love story uh, in the middle of this crime story and as well as uh, have all this very great dialogue, these iconic moments and scenes that maybe aren't as iconic as, say, um, the scenes in Pulp Fiction or Inglorious Bastards or Reservoir Dogs or Django Unchained and stuff like that. But, you know, he's really able to, like, you know, tell, tell a really compelling stories, really compelling characters. I mean, Pam Greer's character in the film ultimately... Her her character and Robert Forrester's character together, that love story, it's so fascinating how he's able to write that and how he's able to write this very subtle love story between these two characters that you immediately buy into uh, when once you see them first meet. And and that's a hard thing to do. And I'm not a big person with like love at first sight type movie. Like I don't like romance movies have always been hard for me because I think the number one sin that a lot of these directors and writers who write in direct these romance movies is that I can never fully buy into the romance I just can't I mean I I saw West Side Story twice and both times I just didn't buy it (laughs) but Jackie Brown the ending of Jackie Brown hurts because you buy into that romance so much and you really are like oh my god I'm emotional emotional damage (laughs) I don't know if any of you guys have ever seen that, but that's how really how that feels. It's really how it feels when you get to the end of that movie. And, you know, what's great is that there's this love story that's in the center of all this, of the two stories of these two characters who have a lot of these obstacles being built around them because of criminal activity that they're uh, involved in. And that's always been very, very inspiring to me that Tarantino was able to do that so well in that film. Um, and it's a film I highly recommend everybody watch, especially if you're a fan of Tarantino. I think Jackie Brown is 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 a great follow-up to Pulp Fiction and highlights a lot of the strengths that he shows in Pulp Fiction, um, but in a, in a very different light and tone than Pulp Fiction did. Uh, so, yeah. And next and finally, we have a film... By, that is written by Patty Chayefsky and, of course, directed by Sidney Lumet, and that is Network. Um, I'm a sucker. As you can see with this list, I'm a sucker for big multi-character narratives <laughs> in films, but I'm also a, a big fan of political films, and not just films that are political and have a certain political message. I like when there's a very well-made political film, even I don't necessarily agree with the message, right? And Network may not be overtly political film, but it definitely is a film that is, you know, analyzing societal implications, um, of certain things. And in this point, it's the corporatization the, uh, of the news media, right? Because, before, you know, Network was a film about essentially how when news media went from trying to, you know, just report the news and was expected to take a loss to ultimately being expected to turn a profit and become entertainment, 
the ethics of news media and the news really, really went out, really, really took a dive. And maybe it was already taking a dive before then, but it really took a dive after the uh, multinational conglomerates bought up news media and were like, okay, this is uh, basically a failing company that we need to turn into a very profitable business model. And network is satirical and dark and, you know, it's very funny at times, and it's also very, very serious at times at well, as well. And I think one of the greatest strengths of it is it's able to balance, you know, that bigger story about, about the societal implications of, of, of the conglomeration of news media, while at the same time writing very believable characters who all feel very natural in their environment and what they're doing and in the pursuit of their goals, it feels very realistic. And I think that's part of the reason why Network sells so well, right, as a film when you watch it. Because when you're watching this film, you're like, okay, uh, there's this reporter lady who's super driven. You're like, there's this, you know, aging uh, head of the news media corporation who's like, you know, trying to keep his trying to keep his whole thing in order there's the guy who had a mental breakdown uh, that the that the company is now trying to figure out what the heck to do with him but somehow he became popular so now they're trying to figure out how to monetize it and you know there's all these different stories that are happening at the same time and you buy into the person maybe not exactly buy into the personal motives of all those characters but observing them isn't an, an isn't hard because you actually believe who they are and it's weird now because you know in a, nowadays like you really really have seen what Patty Chayefsky predicted working at full force and at the same time you're able to really really recognize these people as real people whereas maybe when you look at the news so to speak or different things you don't really see them as as real people or all kind of feel like robots sometimes to me anyway but when you look at but when you're looking at uh it in the film you're like okay these are real people these are these are real people who are doing a real thing and you know when you're watching it all unfold and especially when you get to the ending that's one of the craziest things too about about the movie is that it's able it gets you to buy into this insane ending in this movie which i think is something that's you know that's hard to do and you you hear a lot of that about that now right where you hear about oh the movie was good but it didn't necessarily earn its ending Patty Chayefsky's writing and Sidney LeMay's directing, with creating these very believable, realistic characters, as well as, you know, creating a narrative that has something to say and is very, very, and I think maybe the key that to that, you know, to nailing that part of it, right? The the big, the bigger part of it, the more plotty part of it is, um, you know getting the real feel of authenticity down. And I think that's something that uh, Patty Chayefsky really nailed specifically in that film is that this really feels like a real news media company. This really feels like real business negotiations. These characters feel like they're having actual, actual real discussions where they actually believe in the stakes of what's going on and they're not dumbing it down for you. You know what I mean? That's, I think, a big issue with films uh, when I watch them. Is that there's the subsequent dumbing down of like these mechanisms that that the clearly the filmmakers don't think the audience is smart enough to grasp or understand, right? Um, you know, uh, one of my biggest complaints with a movie like uh, Clint Eastwood's The Mule was I felt all the cop stuff was insanely watered down. 
network or but then on the flip side of 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 that coin right is when you look at a movie like zodiac and it's completely not watered down it just drops you into it and it's like you have to do your best to follow along and i think because um these creators these writers they don't think that their audience is necessarily smart enough to handle a lot of the information that they're throwing at them they dumb it down and then the movie comes off as cheap Patty Chayefsky Network doesn't do that. And that's one of the big successes of that movie is that you don't feel like you're watching a movie TV news network. You feel like you're watching a real TV news network. You you feel like you're really watching these real discussions go down. And, you know, he's really able to earn your trust enough that when you're watching the film and they get to making a certain decision of the movie that is very horrific, um, and then when you get to see the end result of that, you believe it and you're like, oh my God, I can't believe they pulled that off. And I think like there's a big lesson in watching a film like Network and that is, right, trust your audience, right? When you're talking about these things, don't be scared to be a little vague. Don't be scared to not explain everything and just let the thing explain itself by being there. You know what I mean? Let the concept, let the mechanisms at play explain themselves just by functioning, Right. Like like you'll pick it up. Like if you don't know what a machine does, watch the machine do the thing that it does. And then ultimately you'll get it right. And I think that's that's one of the biggest takeaways from that movie for me. And that's something that, you know, when I want to write, um, you know, big, you know, maybe not big is the word, but like movies about like these systems. Right. A, a movie about a system and how the system works and what the certain people trapped within the system have to deal with then a movie like Network is very, very inspiring and not only inspiring, but helpful because it's teaching you, you know, when you're writing about a system, the best thing is to let the system do its thing and then let the people decide about how they feel about it based on how the characters have to interact with it, right? Don't water down the dialogue, right? Really do your research because it needs to come across as authentic in order to be sold properly to its audience. At least that's how I feel when I watch that movie. But yeah, those are some movies that uh, you know they inspire me to write. They they they're very interesting. They're films that I I think about often when I want to write. The films that I look to for inspiration when I want to write certain things. Um, they all sort of encompass different different aspects of what I want to you know get better at when I write. So I hope they maybe help you. Maybe you've learned about some cool new movies to see. Um, but yeah. Thank you so much for listening again to another episode of Ed Talks Film. Uh, I will be doing these episodes probably more like weekly. You know, I'm doing these two episodes really close to each other in sort of days because I, you know, I want to make sure there's at least something on the podcast, right, for you guys to listen to, so to speak. So, uh, yeah. And, yeah, I just I just hope that you guys really enjoyed this episode and maybe you guys learned about some new movies that you can go check out that maybe you haven't seen before. Thank you guys so much for listening. Um, Please check out the YouTube channel, Ed Talks Film Redux. It will be linked in the show notes for this episode. Thank you guys very much. I will see you guys next time. Peace.